Hi, everyone. Welcome to Curious at Work, a bi-monthly series where our curatorial team dives into our collections. Um, my name is Brittany Hutchinson. I'm one of the curators here at the VMHC, and there's my colleague Paige Newman, who's also a curator here. Um, today, we're going to be talking about segregation and desegregation and transportation in Virginia. So our program today is called Paving the Way, Desegregating Transportation in Virginia. Um, so we're going to start off with a little background. Um, so next slide for me, please. Um, first, to kind of set the stage of what's happening um, in the country at this time, the sort of beginning of the movement toward desegregating transportation is we have, of course, the Dred Scott decision, wherein African-Americans were deemed not citizens of the United States. In this landmark case, um, Dred Scott was uh, arguing for his freedom after his uh, former enslaver moved him from Virginia to Illinois, a free state at the time. And so once that case was decided that he could not claim his freedom, um, the, the general sense uh, for African-Americans was that they didn't belong in the United States as they were not considered citizens. Next slide. And second, uh, another landmark case that took place in the, the late 1800s, early 1900s, that um, helped uh, set the stage for what would become the civil rights movement later on is Plessy versus Ferguson. And so a very famous case as well, Homer Plessy uh, in a, a strategic act um, entered a whites only car, a train car in, in Louisiana and was subsequently arrested. And his case made it all the way to the Supreme Court wherein um, the court decided that it would uphold segregation in public transportation across the United States. And that leads us to our first uh, you know, notable person we're gonna talk about today when we're discussing citizenship, and that's John Mitchell Jr. Next slide for me, please. And so John Mitchell Jr.'s fight was really focused on the citizenship concerns of African-Americans and agitating for full citizenship um, that would sort of uh, combat both the Dred Scott decision and Plessy versus Ferguson. Next slide for me. So some background on John Mitchell Jr. Um, he was born enslaved in Richmond on July 11th, 1863. He was educated at Richmond's Colored Normal School and later worked as a teacher. Um, it's really important to note here that he was also someone who was able to learn how to read from his parents. His mother taught him how to read um, early on in life. And so he had this um, drive to, you know, uh, further education and further himself and his community. He was also someone who focused a lot of his efforts on um, how to change or improve how African-Americans were treated, especially here in Virginia. Next slide. So uh, one thing that he really sort of brought to the forefront in his work um, was sort of uh, his uh, appeal to um, literacy, his appeal to the public, the Black community as a whole. Um, after the, uh, you know, Virginia passed a series of Jim Crow segregation laws um, focused on transportation, uh, those in 1904, um, John Mitchell took to his newspaper to, to vocally uh, oppose those laws. Um, and so when, at the age of 21, he actually uh, became the editor of the Richmond Planet, which was the Black newspaper in Richmond that focused on the issues and the things that African-Americans had to deal with on a regular basis. Um, using his newspaper, he talked about anti-lynching laws that he wanted to help enact. And so he also supported other activists like um, 
Frederick Douglass and Ida B. Wells in their pursuit for equality for African-Americans. He also uses newspaper to uh, use as a call to action for the black community. Go to the next slide for me, please. So as I mentioned in, in 1904, um, the Virginia Passenger and Power Company published a segregation policy in the uh, Richmond Times Dispatch, which you see a, a clip of here in the middle. And it called for you know, upholding racist segregation laws on the public transportation trolleys in Richmond. Um, and of course, because John uh, Mitchell had become an outspoken advocate for black civil rights, as well as someone who spoke against segregation, he saw this as a, um, a direct um, you know, call to create more distance and discord between blacks and whites in Virginia. And he used, again, his paper to fight against this. Um, in 1904, he also decided to enact uh, a boycott. Go to the next slide for me, please. So in his boycott, um, John Mitchell called for African-Americans to walk, to seek other forms of transportation, to band together to support each other in boycotting the, the trolley system. And what essentially happened was that it began in April and within a few months, uh, as, as early as July of the same year, uh, the Virginia Passenger and, and, Passenger and Power Company uh, filed for bankruptcy. They were unable to maintain their business without the use and the, the patrons of African-Americans in Richmond. Um, of course, following that bankruptcy, there were some other laws that were enacted that unfortunately tried to reinforce those segregation, segregationist laws um, concerning uh, transportation and education as well. Next slide for me, please. So John Mitchell Jr. again was someone who fought on all fronts of uh, African-American liberation and civil rights. Um, he was someone who ran for public office several times. He won a few uh, offices. Um, he's someone who was an educator for a, a number of years in his life until he was uh, subsequently pushed out of his position by a newly elected uh, Democratic uh, school board. He was also someone who, who started a bank for African-Americans and became one of the only black bankers in Virginia to help secure financial uh, advancements for African-Americans. And then next slide for me, please. So my colleague Paige Newman will take over and follow our conversation through the civil rights era. Thanks, Brittany. Hi, everyone. So I'm gonna be sharing the stories of Irene Morgan and Bruce Boynton, who aren't the most well-known names of the civil rights era, but their decisions to defy Jim Crow in the 1940s and 50s resonated long after their arrests. Before the age of 30, they each became plaintiffs in landmark United States Supreme Court cases that set the stage for the Freedom Rides of 1961 and the eventual erosion of legal segregation. Um, slide, please. So before Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat on a bus on, in Montgomery, Alabama, there was Irene Morgan. Morgan was born in Baltimore, Maryland, and um, she worked for on a production line for an aircraft company making B-26 Marauders. Those are bomber, bomber planes. In 1944, Morgan was heading back to Baltimore after spending time with her mother in Gloucester. She bought a ticket and boarded the Greyhound bus sitting in the back of the sitting in the back at the designated area for colored people. The bus was crowded when the two white passengers boarded in Middlesex County. The driver asked Morgan and another woman to move to the back. Morgan refused. 
and the driver proceeded to the next town to have her arrested. Next slide. The officer gave Morgan an arrest warrant. She tore it up in his face. When the officer tried to forcibly remove her, she kicked him. Other officers responded and removed Morgan from the bus. Eventually, she was taken into custody and charged with resisting arrest and with violating Jim Crow laws, which are laws enforcing racial segregation. In Middlesex County Circuit Court, Morg, excuse me, Morgan pleaded guilty to the charge of resisting arrest and agreed to pay a $100 fine. But she refused to plead guilty to failing to give up her seat and pay the fine of $10. Next slide. Spotswood Robinson, an attorney from the Richmond firm Hill, Martin, and Robinson, took her case and with the support of the Richmond branches of the National Office of the NAACP, which is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, they prepared a series of appeals to fight against Virginia's Jim Crow transit laws. Morgan's case was driven by the question of whether Greyhound rules, which allowed the receding of passengers at the driver's discretion, or the Virginia law, which required segregation even in interstate commerce, which had attempted to force Morgan to the back of the bus. Her case went to court and was represented by Robinson William Hasty and Thurgood, excuse me, Thurgood Marshall as co-counsel. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled in violation of the law, ruled her in violation of the law. So she took her case to the US Supreme Court which ruled in Morgan's favor that enforcing Virginia's state law on interstate buses was unconstitutional. Next slide, please. Um, Morgan was awarded for her determination and contributions to the civil rights movement, including receiving, as a picture here of um, President Bill Clinton, awarding her the Presidential Citizens Medal in 2011, excuse me, 2001. And then she received the Freedom Fighter Award from the NAACP in 2002. So let's, next slide please, we'll move on to Bruce Boynton. So Mr. Boynton in 1958 was on his way home to Selma, Alabama via Trailways bus. And on the way, um, the bus stopped in Richmond, Virginia for a 40 minute layover at a Trailways bus terminal in Richmond. He decided to get some food before returning to the bus. Next slide, please. Realizing the restaurant was segregated and due to the unclean conditions of the colored section, Boynton decided to give his order at the whites only section. The staff directed him to move back to the colored section. But as a third year law student, Boynton understood the consequences of not complying with the order. After explaining to the manager that he was an interstate bus passenger wishing to order something to eat, a police officer arrived and arrested him. Next slide, please. He was charged with misdemeanor trespassing, fined, 100 buck, fined 10 bucks, and spent the night in jail. He would appeal his conviction, filing a motion that his arrest at the Trailways Terminal was a violation of his civil rights. A Virginia court dismissed Boynton's motion that was also upheld by the Supreme Court of Virginia. Boynton's knowledge of the American legal system and determination to rectify the disservice he was given in Richmond led him to appeal his case to the U.S. Supreme Court. The case, Boynton v. Virginia, argued by future Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, stated that Boynton was an interstate traveler 
and he was protected from all discriminatory laws under the Interstate Commerce Act. A 1960 decision of seven to two, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Boynton, stating that the Interstate Commerce Act not only prohibits racial discrimination during travel, but also in travel terminal waiting rooms and restaurants. Boynton's fight inspired the Freedom Rides of 1961, which involved civil rights activists organizing bus rides to travel throughout the Deep South and challenging the lack of enforcement of the provisions made in the Boynton v. Virginia case. Next slide, please. Boynton graduated from Howard University Law School shortly after his arrest in Richmond. Due to the publicity of Boynton's case, he was denied admittance into the Alabama, Alabama State Bar. Boynton would become an attorney and practice law in Chattanooga, Tennessee, until he received his law license from the state of Alabama in 1965. He would spend the rest of his career as a civil rights attorney in Alabama, where he also became the first black special prosecutor in the state. And I want to mention a little side note. I don't, did not put an image of Bruce's mother, Amelia Boynton Robinson, but she was also a civil rights activist who helped lead the 1965 Bloody Sunday Voting Rights March and was also the first black woman to run for Congress in Alabama. So this is just a brief, just a, two people who made an important mark on civil rights and, and Richmond being one of those places that this happened. So I'm gonna kick it back to Brittany so I think that um, Paige really summed it up really well, just how important Virginia and Richmond happens to be in this sort of fight for civil rights, all the way from John Mitchell Jr. all the way down to Bruce Boynton. And even in between those time periods, other activists like Polly Murray, um, who was arrested in Richmond in 1940 for refusing to give up her seat on the bus as well, um, really kind of solidifies how important this state is to sort of the development of desegregation. Um, we all know that, of course, uh, once Board versus Brown was ruled that uh, massive resistance kept a lot of segregation in schools and busing became a way to, to, to combat that. But I think the people we've talked about today have had such an impact on what we consider maybe just about transportation, but these larger issues are definitely connected to transportation from citizenship to education and just general civil rights. And working with Paige on this, I think that you know, learning and sort of absorbing how much um, lineage is involved and heritage is involved in civil rights activism is really important. So Paige, do you have like any um, a takeaway from your research on this project that kind of signifies Virginia's uh, importance or anything that you just want to add in? I do, I actually, and um, discussing just researching, doing the research for this. And I admit, I mean, I'm aware of the civil rights movement and where, I mean, being here and located in, in Virginia and Richmond, Virginia, and I'm aware, but I, I think what surprised me was that trying to go deeper, a deeper dive into Boynton and Morgan, it was difficult to find. And granted, I'm doing this, you know, through more online and less from, and some from our, what we have in our collections. But the fact that those are the main stories that come up when you research Irene Morgan and um, Bruce Boynton. And basically, mostly it was their obituaries. They're, where are more of the research and the history that's involved in their background and what their contributions beyond this one act? Because they both were 
civil rights activists before mm -hmm. and after. And it's just how this one event, which was extremely important, why isn't there more research done, you know, to the breadth of their lives too? That is definitely one takeaway. Yeah, I know we were talking about just how to find these sort of resources in African-American history and culture that so much of, you know, Black folks' history doesn't make it into an archive. It stays with family members, it stays with descendants, it stays with, you know, uh, within the church and other organizations. And I think this project is something that, um, you know, knowing that this is sort of going to be harder to find for us and using the things in our collection, also working with the Black History Museum here in Richmond, um, was such a fantastic experience to kind of dig up those easier to find parts, but also really shed light on what we need to move forward with in our collecting and our own research as curators. So we have a couple of questions um, I want to get answered. And of course, Paige and I can go back and forth here. So our first question is, uh, were there any lawyers involved during the trolley boycott in 1904 since the NAACP was not founded? So in my research, again, you know, we have um, the Richmond Planet that gives us a breakdown almost. He, John Mitchell Jr. published multiple stories every single day in the Richmond Planet to kind of document this boycott. And because there was no sort of governing body or collective body of representation for African-Americans at this time that, that had a larger voice like the NAACP, um, this was really a grassroots organized function. I mean, the importance of the Black press is something that we see in other cities in New York, Chicago, and Virginia is no different. So um, really, this is, was a matter of, you know, the Black community coming together and fighting on their own behalf without the sort of added benefit of, of lawyers and other professionals to jump in and help. Right. Um, Paige, you see any questions that you might want to answer? Let's see. Let me... I didn't put my sheet here for the question. I, I, can, I can, I'll ask another one while you fill up your sheet. Okay? Yeah. I will ask, let's see, it's another good one. Um, so here's one that's, that's about Irene Morgan, but I can jump in if you want to jump in after, yeah. then we'll just tag team it. Um, the question is, was Mrs. Morgan as respected in her community as Rosa Parks? So that's a, that's a fantastic question, I think, because when we think about Rosa Parks, a lot of us have an idea that this was a spontaneous act of civil disobedience that she that she did on this on this bus in 19 and down in um in the further deep south, but it was a strategic approach um, that was planned. She was a secretary for the NAACP. She also, for what it's worth, had the appearance and the sort of respectability, quote unquote, that um, you know that freedom fighters and civil rights activists knows that she, knew that she needed to have. There were other people, as we mentioned, who were arrested for sitting and refusing to give their seat on buses, Irene Morgan being one of them. There's um, Claudette Coven, as well as Polly Murray. And with these three women, Polly Murray, who identified um, not as female or male for a period of her life, um, who was gender fluid even in the 1940s. Um, Claudette Coven was a, a young, uh, single teen mother. And I think Mrs. Morgan, wasn't someone who fit the sort of bill that that folks who understood the image politics of things fit. So even if she wasn't selected to have that placement that Rosa Parks had, she certainly was respected. I mean, she fought back, which is something that Rosa Parks didn't do. <laughs> so that's why she was chosen to take that place. But um, I think now that we understand just how strategic the NAACP had to be to get their point across, we can kind of look at um, Mrs. Morgan's 
uh, her her case a little differently and appreciate it a little bit more. I think it's also, I'm, a, I'm talking so much, Paige. I'm sorry. Yeah, get it in there. yeah. <laughs> it's also important to note that um, uh, uh, Homer, Homer Plessy, him refusing to give up his seat on that train car in Louisiana was also strategic. Um, he actually had, at the time, there were white lawyers and a few other folks who worked for the train company who helped stage that and to get that case uh, forwarded to the Supreme Court. So another thing that we, we really talk about when we talk about Black history is just how um, strategic so much of the, the, the movements we've seen, how they started out, how they were planned, and um, I think it's an important question to ask. So go ahead, Paige. I'll let you take it away. No, I, I see there. there is a question oh. that someone, and I'll read it out. It says, have you looked at the effects of racism and segregation on today's Richmond bus system? So I think we we kept it to this time period, but I think that's a great question to ask. It's part of our job is to sort of relate history to what we are experiencing today. And I think that in any situation where we have... Um, a system of oppression that's been codified, that's been routinely reinforced, even accidentally reinforced. Those those remnants do exist. Um, while I can't say, you know, directly what parallels I've noticed, um, I do think that there are certainly some parallels that exist today, and that um, a way to address those would be to maybe draw the line back to history and, and to reconnect back to history and how those things are so similar and how we can combat them. So it's not necessarily a direct answer to the question, but it certainly does need to be fixed. I agree with you. Yeah. Um, I don't know how to say your last name, but thank you, Carolyn. Definitely. I'm still scrolling for questions. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> I'd actually, I the question, um, Mrs. Morgan fined ten dollars. Was she ever reimbursed after the final rulings? I didn't find anything. <laughs> What about Brittany, did you? I, you know what? Part of me says I don't think so. <laughs> I didn't see anything either. But you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised in either case. I feel like if you know folks wanted to reimburse her as a, a, a formal apology or part of an apology, great. But I don't know. I really don't. Actually, on her note, I this is not involving exactly this topic, but you know, in the research, I reading that she actually um went back to school she got her what her bachelor's at 68 mm. went back and got her ma master's at the age of 72 and Amazing. i love that <laughs> yeah i think that speaks to how like you know how she yeah. was right yeah i couldn't imagine getting a master's degree in my 70s like i'm you know <laughs> i barely did it in my 30s so <laughs> Um, okay. So I think we have time for one more question. Uh, see, let me scroll. Um, um, you know, I don't want to leave out. I mean, I, I can't really speak too much about it, but um, Maggie Walker was also, you know, mm -hmm. going with, you know, John Mitchell Jr. Oh, yeah. 1904. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's a, a Maggie Walker and so many others who were part of this um group of community leaders who did all of this work and led all of this work and understood the importance of the everyday person who just had to get to their job and pay their bills to care of their family right they didn't have maybe the the middle class means 
to, to do so much of the, the forward-facing activism. But I think that's something that's really important that we think of today where we have so much that we wanna address in our society as Ms. Carolyn brought up and the questions of how do we fix the systems that are broken? And, and you know, it's great to have a leader, but the, the everyday person like us, we all have to do the work to make sure that we can make the, you know, our experiences better as citizens of, you know, Richmond or just Virginia as a whole. So I think that's, that's really great to bring up, um, you know, Maggie Walker, but I think a lot of the work that we, a lot of the, the changes we've seen, you know, the folks that we've talked about in this presentation um, lead, the work and the labor and the the muscle behind it was a lot of just, you know, everyday folks who who stood for something. So, yep. So I feel like we're just at four minutes left for our presentation. Are there any more questions from the audience? I can scroll some more to see if we got anything else. Okay. All righty. So I think we can wrap up here. We got about three minutes left. Um, so thank you all for joining us. It's always a pleasure I get to work oh. with Paige on a project. <laughs> we, we do have a question. Oh, oh, no, yes. yeah. So Irene Morgan pled guilty to the resisting arrest charge and contested the segregation issue. Was there any public testimony describing the events on the bus beyond the interstate commerce issue? Public testimony. I didn't come across any personally um, that so like public testimony as in sort of feedback from the public or um, anything that it landed in the newspaper. I didn't see any quotes or anything like that from many newspapers at that time that directly sort of recounted the, the events on the bus. Um, yeah. But I would say that her fighting back is probably why she did become sort of the face of desegregating transportation like Rosa Parks did. Because um, again, you know, a lot of respectability politics were involved in, in those decisions back then. And even now we see some of that. But um, other than the NAACP's decision to uh, recreate the, the case using Rosa Parks, I don't know if there's any other commentary that I could, I could attach to this particular instance. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you, Ben. Thank you. Court testimony. Court testimony. Oh. Court testimony. Now, I didn't read the full court documents for this. <laughs> Where did I? That's a very good question. Quite long. Um, but I'm sure there's testimony from the officer and from the officials involved. Um, again, personally, it's, you know, we, we try to focus on the activists per se and not necessarily what happened in the courtroom as far as testimony goes. But I'm sure there's, there's quite a bit. Um, the court cases, they're all very, very lengthy. That's a good question. Yeah, something I just wrote a note to go back and <laughs> to look at those. Back. So yeah, and I'll just um, add if for future programs and other programs, what's going on here at the VMHC, please check our website at um, virginiahistory.org. And I'm gonna say, yes, I love working with Brittany. So hopefully we'll do more. <laughs> more you'll see us again. <laughs> <laughs> But thank you for joining us today. And yeah, hopefully you'll join us again. All right, thanks. Have a great Friday. Enjoy your weekends. Take care. <laughs>